good morning, if you would. Grab your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 8, if you would. If you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, if you're new or just visiting this morning, welcome. My name is Dustin. Uh, I get to be the lead pastor here. If you're just joining us, we're going through the book of Hebrews this fall, and I couldn't be more excited to be doing it uh, as a church. This morning, we're looking at page 1,192 in these blue Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of these hardback Bibles. They're all throughout the room. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's holy and inerrant word out in front of them as we look at Hebrews chapter 8 together. Uh, right now, we're just going to read out loud. I'm going to read to you uh, Hebrews uh, 8, verses 1 through 7. But really, we're looking at all of Hebrews chapter 8 today. Uh, it's one pretty concise unit. So with that in mind, let's look at Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but right now, here, verses 1 through 7. Friend, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. But they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, would you be seated and keep your mind and your heart and your Bible open in front of you? Let's pray. Father, this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we ask for ears to hear what your word says. We ask for expanding hearts to see more and more of who Jesus Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, living now even to intercede for us, our great high priest, the mediator of a new covenant. And Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to behold the spiritual realm, eternity, the realm of heaven where you reside. And Lord, would we see how heaven comes to bear even in life, in this world, even today, in our very lives. Lord, we ask all of this and more in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, does anybody know what the Hillary step is? Does anybody know what the Hillary step is? Uh, it's a new dance on TikTok. No, I'm just kidding. That's not real. It kind of sounds like it, though. Uh, if you're over the age of 60, TikTok is a, is a thing on social media, I think. I've never actually used it, but I've heard about it. Uh, the Hillary Step, does anybody know what the Hillary Step is? Uh, well, here, let me show you a picture of the Hillary Step. So uh, what famous mountain is that that someone from our church has scaled to the summit of? Anybody know what famous mountain that is? Yeah, that's Mount Everest. Uh, a guy from our church has actually been to the top of that mountain. Uh, you can find out who that is by asking some people. Uh, but uh, until about 2015, uh, when an earthquake hit Nepal, there was a section of Mount Everest famously called the Hillary Step. 
and it was a 39-foot straight, you know, vertical section of the mountain. And until 1953, nobody could get past the Hillary step. I mean, imagine climbing up to Mount Everest, and then all of a sudden, right before you're at the summit, you get to this basically 40-foot straight-up mountain that you have to climb straight up. Well, it wasn't until 1953 that Sherpa Tenzing Norgay and a British man named Edmund Hillary finally figured out how to scale the Hillary step, and that's when people were able to finally summit the top of Mount Everest. So the reason I mention all this to you is because, to me, understanding Hebrews and preaching through it and our congregation going through it is sort of like climbing Mount Everest. Like, people can do it, but it's pretty difficult. But I want to tell you, last week when we went through how Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, y'all basically went through the Hillary step of the book of Hebrews. Now, what you need to recognize, though, is that we're still going to the summit of the book of Hebrews. We're still scaling the very top. But here's the great news. Y'all have gone through the Hillary step. You have passed through the 40-foot cliff of how Jesus is like Melchizedek. You've done the hard part. So keep pushing, and let's see what this passage has to say. So we're climbing to the top of the book of Hebrews. We're almost at the very top, and you've done the hard part. So now let's look at the very, very top of Hebrews. Okay, before we do that, though, let's recap Hebrews. Go flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. This is going to be very quick, but the author of Hebrews likes to retell things over and over again. So in that spirit, let's see if you can kind of track with where we've been so far in the book of Hebrews. So if you flip over in your Bible, you can grab a Bible. Don't be scared. It's not going to bite hard. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, I guess. That's a Hebrews joke for those who get it. Hebrews chapter 1, we're uh, being told that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So God the Son has entered our world as Jesus Christ. Uh, He is what all of the prophets have pointed toward. In Hebrews chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is greater than all of the angels, all of these incredibly terrifying, powerful spiritual beings. Jesus is greater than all of them. They bow down to him. And if you look down at verse 5, we're told right there that God says to Jesus, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me as a son. And if you know the Bible, you'll know that that's a reference to God's covenant promise to a man named David, that one of King David's descendants would rule forever. So right here, we're told that God is going to keep his covenant promise to David. The Messiah is going to come save the world. And Jesus is that Messiah. He is the Christ. That's another word for Messiah. And Hebrews chapter 2, he continues to show us that Jesus is greater than all of the angels, that he's come to be our Savior. Hebrews chapter 3, if you keep going, we learn that Jesus is not just greater than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 3, we learn that Jesus is greater than even Moses. Moses, the man who saw God on Mount Sinai, who was given the book of the covenant. God made a covenant agreement with Moses to give him the Old Testament law. And yet Jesus is greater than Moses. And then going through Hebrews 3 and 4, if you look down in your lap, you'll see the author of Hebrews wants you to know that Jesus gives a better rest than even the promised land. God's covenant promise to the people of Israel was that they would have the promised land to their offspring forever. And yet that promised land is always pointing towards the true rest, a new heavens and a new earth that Jesus is going to bring about. True rest comes from knowing Jesus. 
And then if you keep going, uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in, into Hebrews chapter 5, uh, the author of Hebrews, right before he goes to the summit, the, the core section of Hebrews, he pauses and he gives them a severe warning to not jump out of the boat, right? And that's really Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12 is a severe warning. And then, of course, uh, we learn in the second half of Hebrews 6, if you look down, that God is faithful to his promise to Abraham. And there again, we are reminded of another covenant that God made, a solemn bond with a man named Abraham, that one of Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, would someday bless all of the peoples of the earth. And the author of Hebrews wants you to know that that covenant promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The promise of the people of Israel that Abraham's offspring would save the world has happened, and it's in Jesus Christ. Okay, so all of that to say, the author of Hebrews says in this section, I didn't, I didn't point it out, but he says this is the basics of Christianity. This is the elementary stuff. <laughs> this is like, I would imagine, like, like I'm going to go climb Mount Everest, and then you make it to, like, base camp one, and they're like, well, that was the easy part. And you'd be like, that was the easy part. Get me out of here. I want to go back to the hotel, right? <laughs> that was the easy part? Well, if you look now at Hebrews chapter 7, if you look in your Bible, just flip through this. Hebrews chapter 7 eight, nine, and then basically half of chapter 10. That is the summit of Hebrews. After, you know, Hebrews 10, 18, everything else is downhill. It's mostly encouragement and kind of moral commands. But right now we are at the summit and it's all about how Jesus is a great high priest. And last week we learned that he's a priest like Melchizedek and all it means for Jesus to be our high priest, this is all you need to understand. All that means is Jesus Christ is the person that is your mediator. Jesus stands in the gap between you and God. Jesus is the only person that can lay a hand on God and lay a hand on you and bring you closer to God so that you become who you are always meant to be, a human made in the image of God, redeemed by his grace. Jesus is your high priest. And he gets his priesthood, not because he's of the tribe of Levi and not because he's a Levitical priest. He gets it because he's a priest like Melchizedek was a priest. And if you don't know what those words mean, just check out the sermon from last week. So all that to say, now let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. And the reason I mention all of this is because whenever you're climbing Mount Everest, uh, you don't just climb it by yourself. I haven't done it, but I would, I've seen pictures on Google, so I know this is true. <laughs> you know, when you climb Mount Everest, you do this kind of scary thing. You've probably seen people mountain climbing it. You know, when you mountain climb, you put a rope around your waist, and then you do what with the rope? Does anybody know? You attach it to somebody else, and then they do what with the rope? They attach it to somebody else, and so you're all roped together as you climb the summit. And why do you do that? because you're all gonna do it together. And if somebody falls, you need the weight and the strength of others to keep the person from dying. So you rope together to make the summit. And the reason I'm giving you sort of this overview is because Hebrews ropes all of these ideas together. So if you're gonna understand Hebrews eight, on some level, you gotta be roped to Hebrews chapter seven and Hebrews chapter six and five and so on. And so really there's no easy way to break Hebrews down into sections because all of these ideas are going together. Remember, this was one sermon originally, right? <laughs> so all that to say, what is it that we're supposed to see now out of Hebrews chapter eight? Well, let's go. 
Look at verse eight, verse one. And we're really gonna look at two things. Uh, one, sort of the spiritual realm, and then what does it mean that Jesus brings about the new covenant, right? We're scaling to the top, we're at the peak. You've passed the Hillary step. You can see the summit, keep going. Now he says in verse eight, he says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Don't you like it when somebody tells you, this is what I'm telling you? <laughs> this is the point. Jesus is our high priest. He is an amazing high priest. He is the only one that can bring you into a relationship with the living God. If you wanna become who you were meant to be, if you want to know who God is, you've got to go through Jesus Christ. He is the bridge between you and the Father. And that's what we learn right there in verse one. This is the point. Jesus is such an amazing high priest. And where is Jesus right now, according to eight verse one? Well, you know, we like to say, of course, Jesus is in our heart, but you know, what Hebrews is gonna remind us is yes, the spirit of the living God is within his people's hearts, but really where is Jesus Christ? He's in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is right next to the father, right? Look at verse eight, one. Jesus is our high priest. He is our bridge to God and he is right by God's right hand. He couldn't be any closer to the father. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In verse two, we learn that he is a minister in the holy place, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, what's fascinating about this is if you were to understand the Old Testament and you'd kind of look at how they did worship, it was a little different than how you and I would do worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship God, God was in a specific place. Uh, for a long time, when God's people were wandering through the wilderness, he lived in a Anybody know? Where, where, where did God dwell during the wilderness period? If you were, you know, reading the Old Testament, you were living in those days, where would you go if you wanted to be near God's presence? Would you go to Jacksonville, Oregon? No. No, the commute's too long. No, you would go to the tabernacle, to a tent. And in that tent, there was a place called the holy place. And inside that tent was an even smaller, more holy place called the holy of holies. And priests would go into the first part of the tent all the time because they had to change out the bread of the presence and they had to keep the candelabra, the menorah going right. And they had the incense going and that was worship. And they had places of worship outside where they would do animal sacrifices. But once a year, the high priest would go where? The, the highest of the priests who were giving sacrifices and gifts to God's glory, atoning for sin, all that. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, into God's immediate presence. And it was so terrifying to be in God's presence. They used to tie a rope to the high priest's ankle. Why? Because if he died in the presence of the holy God, somebody had to pull him out, pull out the dead body. Now, what's amazing about that is what the author of Hebrews wants you to know. He kind of wants you to have that image in your mind. What he's going to suggest to you is in that kind of Old Testament, Old Covenant way of interacting with God, do you get the impression that God is near to you or do you get the impression that he, is, that he is holy and set apart from you? In many ways, the way that the Holy of Holies was set up and the way that the holy place was set up and the way that the broader tent was set up and then the way that the, the temple that eventually replaced the tent, you know, the, the temple is just the permanent version of the tabernacle. It was all set up to represent that God was in the midst of his people, but he was holy and he was not approachable by mere people. Only one guy could do it once a year if he didn't have any sin and you made sure you tied a rope to his ankle in case he died. And that's how 
one person once a year could get into the immediate presence of God. But what the author of Hebrews is telling you is that when you draw near to God through faith in his son, you are brought all the way into the presence of the living God. And he rejoices to welcome you into his presence. He clears you of all guilt and sin, and God wants you to draw near to faith in him. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant where you are invited to draw near to God. And the amazing thing is what the author of Hebrews is going to say is the old covenant wasn't bad. It was beautiful and it was glorious. But the amazing thing about the tabernacle and the temple, and this is where it starts to kind of blow our minds a little bit because we don't think like this, is he says all of those earthly things were actually based off of some kind of profound spiritual reality that when Moses met God, Moses saw heaven. And then God said, make a earthly version of that. Look down at Hebrews. Jesus is the minister. Uh, the word right there is actually, like, actually the liturgist. He's ordering the worship. He is in charge of the liturgy of the worship of heaven. <laughs> Jesus, the liturgist, the minister of the holy places. He is not an earthly Levitical priest. He's what the, that was always based on, the actual worship of God in heaven that is going on right now, unending. Jesus is in charge of that worship service. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, the spiritual place of worship, you might say, that God set up, not man. Now, he's going to say, now, of course, if you understand worship, every high priest was appointed to offer gifts. What do you do when you get into the presence of God? You praise him. You give him gifts and sacrifices. You worship him. And he says, that's just the inherent nature of worship. Thus, it's necessary for this priest, that is Jesus, our high priest, to also come to the Father with a sacrifice to offer the Father, with a gift to offer God. And what is the sacrifice, the gift, the fragrant offering that Jesus gives to the Father? What is the blood of the sacrifice? He gives himself. He is the gift of the Father. He is the one that appeases the wrath of God. He is the one that allows you and I to draw near. He ever lives to intercede for you, Christian, for you. What does that mean? For you, well, on a simple level, you know, as you think about Jesus, your high priest, you know, sort of, you know, leading the worship of the Father, giving his life as a ransom for us, you know, on, what does that mean? That's, an, that's a pretty deep theological idea. Um, the late Tim Keller uh, put it this way, and I think it's the easiest way to understand it. Um, he said, think about it this way. The only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m., for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access to the Father. You have that kind of access to the Father. How good for God to invite you to draw near to him, cleansed by the blood of his son. Look at verse four. 
He continues, and he just kind of makes a side point. And the reason why is Jesus in heaven? So he can lead the heavenly worship. That's his point. And his point in verse four, he says, uh, look, if Jesus were still on earth, I mean, if Jesus was just an earthly priest, he couldn't even be a priest at all. Why can't Jesus be just a normal old covenant priest? Why couldn't he be an old covenant priest? Because he's not from the tribe of Levi. That's his only point right there, right? And then look at verse five. He says, the earthly worship, right? The tabernacle, the temple, all of those places were actually somehow a copy and a shadow of the real worship of God that was going on. Um, I mean, if you were living in the Old Testament times, uh, where, we, where did heaven and earth meet? Do you, do you, know, do you know this idea? Like, so there's like the earthly spiritual realm, and then there's the physical realm. And we, you know, yes, they're separated, but it's not like heaven is over here and we live over here. You know, the biblical worldview is those things are overlapping, right? The spiritual and the physical. But if you wanted to know where heaven met earth, and like a pinpoint, where was that place where heaven met earth? Does anybody know? It was in the temple in Jerusalem, right? On Mount Zion, right? In the temple, in the Holy of Holies. That's where heaven and earth met, was at the temple. That's where heaven and earth met, right? And Jesus comes along in John, and he says, who is actually the ultimate temple? Where does heaven meet earth? Jesus says, I am the temple. Tear this temple down in three days, I'll rise it again. Because Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. It's the overlap. What does that always mean? How do we understand? I don't know. These are mind-blowing ideas. They really are. You know, sometimes the application to a Bible verse is just to be in awe of it. Somehow, what was going on in the tabernacle and eventually the temple in Jerusalem, somehow that was a copy and a shadow of what is going on in heaven. Because look at where verse 5 says, for when Moses, that is the guy who was given the instructions on how to make the tabernacle, when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God who told him, see, make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on Mount Sinai. What are you supposed to do with this? Uh, right before I shift into talking about the new covenant, what are we supposed to do with this kind of idea that there's this heavenly worship going on and Jesus is drawing us into that realm? He is our high priest. Um, what do we do with that? Uh, think about it this way, I guess. Um, I, don't, I don't know if this makes sense, but you know, I talk to a lot of people and they're pretty discouraged nowadays. You know, a lot of people are pessimistic. Uh, they're not hopeful for the future. And it's because we see a lot of evil in the world. And uh, you know, regardless of your background, I think we would all admit that we see a lot of wretched things going on right now, just wicked things, pure evil things, right? And I don't think we'd have to debate that. There's a lot of evil going on in this world. And if you're a Christian, on some level, you and I would say that what goes on in our world, like this world, that evil, on some level, if we were to peel back, you know, I don't know, the curtain, so to speak, we would see that behind the evil is actually some kind of evil spiritual force. Paul might call it the rulers and the principalities of this world, like the archdemons demons and Satan, that there is something demonic at work in our world behind all of the evil. Yes, people are sinners, and sometimes we're sinning just because we're sinners, but other times there does seem to be something evil afoot, wouldn't you say? And that gets all kind of amens, amens from a church. But think about it this way. What the author of Hebrews is telling you right now is that there is all kinds of good and glory and beauty 
and worship going on right now. And when you and I sing the doxology, what do you and I say? We sing it every week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below on earth. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. You are talking to the angels. And when we worship God with a true heart, we are not creating worship. We are joining into the song of heaven. And maybe, just maybe, friend, instead of focusing on the evil and trying to figure out how the evil, evil is behind all of the evil, what if you focused on your high priest who's giving his own life for you, who's drawing you in to the song of heaven? What if the good was greater than the evil? What does 1 John tell you, Christian? Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There is a spiritual good afoot and we know who wins. Jesus is ascended in heaven. He is leading the heavenly worship. And you on some profound level Christian are called to experience that in the here and now. So don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Persevere. You can see the top of Mount Everest. Keep going. Why would you stop? Look at verse 6. He keeps going. And now he's going to shift to his, basically this whole section is just this big thought that Jesus is bringing about a new covenant. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had, been, had not been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay, so all, that's a very Hebrews way of saying Jesus is bringing about a new covenant. And if there's a new covenant, that means the old covenant is passing away. And then look at verse 8. He's going to interestingly argue from the old covenant that God has always promised a new covenant with his people. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31 right here. Look at verse 8. For God finds fault with them when he says, God says, my people need a new covenant. That's what he means, finds fault. He says, my people need a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what are we supposed to see from this idea of a new covenant? All right, so um, let me just unpack what the word covenant means. Uh, covenant, this is, you should write this down. Write it on, write it on your heart. Uh, if you don't understand covenants, it's very difficult to understand how Christianity works. A covenant is a solemn, no one's writing this down, thank you. <laughs> thank you for encouraging me. All right, write this down on your hearts. A covenant is a solemn bond 
sealed in blood. Marriage is a covenant between a man and woman, a solemn bond sealed in blood. It is a lifelong commitment, right? A covenant is a solemn bond sealed in blood. Uh, that's Dr. O. Palmer Robertson I'm quoting right there. A covenant is a solemn bond between two people sealed in blood, right? The way that God interacts with his people is through covenants. God makes a covenant promise to his people. You know, when we say things like your love, your unfailing love, or we talk about steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. In Hebrews, it doesn't say steadfast love. It says chesed. Chesed is Hebrew for a word that is so profoundly beautiful that the best translation is actually covenant faithfulness. God is faithful to his covenant promises. God, out of sheer grace, makes unfailing promises to his people, and he binds himself to his people. He doesn't need us, and yet God makes promises. So what are those covenants? Um, you know, so I know this sounds kind of strange, but um, when I say, it's not hyperbole when I say you can't understand the Bible if you don't have a basic understanding of covenant. Um, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Uh, have you ever, raise your hand if you ever tried to draw Mickey Mouse. Have you ever tried to draw Mickey Mouse? It's so hard. Somehow he's all circles, but it doesn't ever work. Have you ever tried to draw Mickey Mouse? And it's like this horror image, you know? It's like this terrifying, like I could dress up like that for Halloween if I wanted to, that's so scary. Well, do you know how you draw Mickey Mouse? I know because I have kids and we used to go to Disney World all the time. So I had to learn how to draw Mickey Mouse. You know how you draw Mickey Mouse? It's fascinating. You don't try to just draw Mickey Mouse. That's too hard because all the, you know, curves and everything. What you do is you actually start with a little pencil, if you really need to draw it correctly, and you actually draw in pencil very light circles everywhere. And so you have like this mess of circles and then out of that you draw with a darker pen the actual faces. Uh, if you've ever taken an art class, you know, sometimes when you draw a human body, you have to learn like the proportions before you can draw the person. You don't just start drawing a stick figure of a person. You've got to learn something behind the skin, right? The more you study a skeleton, the better you can draw a human. Well, the, when you learn to draw the circles, that's how you actually make Mickey Mouse look right. And then once you draw the circles, you can erase the circles and it just oh, looks like a beautiful version of Mickey Mouse. Why am I saying that? Understanding covenants is like that. You have to see how these images, how these ideas are coming out of scripture. And if you can understand covenants, everything about scripture starts to make sense. Um, let me kind of walk you through this. Okay, so um, has God given up on humanity? Is God just kind of done with you? Is God just going to be like, actually, I promised to save you, but instead I'm just going to you know, blow the world up in a giant nuclear bomb. How do you know God's not going to just change his mind? Like, why wouldn't God just write all humanity off? Could he? Well, let's go to a covenant in the Bible. If you go on that next slide, God actually makes a covenant with whom? Noah. And what does he promise Noah? I'm not going to blow up the world again. I'm not going to wipe everybody out with water. Has God been faithful to that covenant promise to you? Yes. And here's the amazing thing about covenants in the Bible. They don't do away with each other. 
they build on top of each other. They are progressive. They build. So God is not done with you. God is faithful to his covenant promise. And what's the sign that God is not done with humanity? Every time you see it in the sky, you should remember what? God is not done with you. You see the rainbow in the sky. God loves this world. Right? What's the sign of the covenant of marriage? A ring. It's the sign of the covenant. What's the next covenant? The solemn bond that God makes to humanity. In Genesis 12, he takes a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land to your offspring forever. And you are going through your descendants. You are going to bless the world. All of the nations will be blessed through your descendants. And God raised up out of Abraham, the people of Israel. And out of Israel, there came the lion of Judah, Jesus, the son of Mary, who saved us from sin. And he offers salvation to whom? Everyone from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. So you might could say that God has been faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham. The next covenant that God makes is at Mount Sinai. God takes Abraham's descendants and he says, I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to write it on tablets of stone. You're going to make the tent and somehow the tent is going to be some kind of copy and shadow of heaven itself. I'm going to give you Levitical priests. They're going to sacrifice animals and it's going to point to the Messiah. Was God faithful to his covenant with Moses? Yes, we're God's people faithful to God in that covenant. No, they lost the land, but because God is gracious, he brought them back. Sort of the last major covenant you might see that God makes is to a man named King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which the author of Hebrews quoted on the first page to remind you of. Remember when you were thinking like 10 minutes ago, why is Dustin doing this? On the first page of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, don't forget God's covenant promise to David, that of all the people of Israel, out of King David's personal lineage will come the Messiah, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So has God been faithful to his promise to David? Yes. Were God's people faithful to the covenant? No, they failed. They were exiled to Assyria and Babylon and God brought them back to the land, but they failed. Why? Because the law written on stone couldn't change their hearts. It didn't make them new people from the inside out. And so on the verge of exile, a guy named Jeremiah, a prophet in Jeremiah 31, he prophesied these words in Hebrews 8. Look down. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish what? A new solemn bond with my people, an unbreakable promise with the house of Israel and Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. That is not like the covenant of Moses when I just wrote laws on a piece of stone. Because in this new covenant, they will continue in my covenant. For this covenant that I will make with them, look at verse 10, I will put my laws not on tablets of stone, but where? 
in their minds and write them where? On their, in the new covenant, you will be changed from the inside out. You might could say, you will be born again. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. He's not saying they're never going to teach Bible studies. That's not what he's saying is you're not going to have to implore God's people. Well, I wish you would know God because in the new covenant, they will know God personally. They will know God, not just know about God. They will know God. There are a lot of people in a lot of churches that know all kinds of things about God and they do not know God. Do you know God and do you love him? That's a sign that you are in the new covenant. And then look at verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So verse 13, in speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and is what becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So if you were to sort of summarize, if you look at the screen, you could call all of those Old Testament stories, what? Together, you could collectively call them what? The Old Covenant. And Jesus is bringing in a new covenant. So how is the new covenant better than the old? Well, look down at this quote from Jeremiah because the author of Hebrews wants you to know that the bond, the relationship, the solemn bond that God offers you through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, is better than you could imagine. Look at verse eight. It says, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. If you read the Old Testament story, you know that God's people were divided. There were two kingdoms when there should have been one. And when God is saying, I'm not gonna pick one or the other, I'm gonna bring all of my people back. And we know from the New Testament that the new covenant is for all of God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, for rich and poor, man and woman, for everybody. The new covenant is for the nations and the nation of Israel. It's for everyone. And then look at verse 10. The new covenant that Jesus offers you is better and it gives you a better hope because it's not just a list of rules for you to live by so that you get into heaven. It's not just a list of rules. What God promises is to write his law in your heart so that you are changed. The mark that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you is that you want to be like Jesus. Not that you are given a list of duties, but you say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like him. I want to be righteous. I want to know God. I want to obey his law. <laughs> you, when you read the Bible, you don't think, how do I get out of this? You read the Bible and you think, yes, amen, more. This is the way of life. This law is written in my heart. Has that interchange happened to you yet? The third way this is a better covenant is right there in verse 11. They shall not have to teach and implore each other to know the Lord, for they will all know me. There's a knowledge of God, not just knowing about God, but knowing God himself. And the way you learn God, the way you learn about him is through Jesus Christ. If you wanna know what God is like, look to Jesus. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. The last thing, and this, you know, this will probably send your mind spinning this whole week. But look at the promise, the last one in verse 12. 
He says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now, if you study the Old Testament law, if you sinned, you would have to make a sacrifice of an animal, right? So if you sinned, you make a sacrifice, you tell your priest, he sacrifices the animals. But what's really interesting, if you were to read the Old Testament law, like the book of Leviticus, uh, which is for the Levites to administer, uh, all of the sacrifices for sin are actually for sins called unintentional sins. You can be forgiven for one of those. What's the sacrifice, though, if you murder somebody? What's the sacrifice you're going to give if you dishonor your mother and father in a profound way? If you commit adultery? What does the law in the Old Testament say when you commit high-handed sin? Death. Death. That's what the Old Covenant says. Death. Sure, if you commit like a small sin, an unintentional sin, yeah, you can go to your priest. But what do you do if you really mess up? It's not much there. God will be your judge. But in the new covenant, God promises forgiveness for everything. Every sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus. You can know forgiveness God wants to forgive you. He wants to draw you to himself, no matter what you have done. This old covenant system of unintentional sins and animal sacrifices, it was always meant to point to Jesus. That's why it's going away. When he says the old covenant is obsolete and growing away, he's not saying all of these covenants are all of a sudden obliterated. His point is that the Levitical system of sacrifices is gone. In fact, just a few years after this, the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem and they can't even offer animal sacrifices anymore. Could God be any more clear? There is no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus has done it for you. And he wants you to draw near to the Father because he loves you. Uh, Christian, you, <laughs> we are at the heights of the mountain. <laughs> Can you see it? Can you see it? Uh, if you feel comfortable, please bow your head as we close in prayer. Fathers, we seemingly stand on this mountain summit looking at beauty and things too glorious for us to understand. Father, we ask that you would give us expanding hearts to encounter an expanding Jesus Christ, our high priest at your right hand, even now interceding for us, offering forgiveness for everything that we confess to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to behold the spiritual realm, not just the bad and the evil, but the beautiful reality of true worship in heaven, even now. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us ears to hear scripture more clearly, how all of the old covenants were pointing to the new covenant, the new bond that you make with us through grace. God, you are the God of Abraham. You're the God of covenant faithfulness. Lord, you have proven over and over again that your faithfulness to us is great and unending. Father, you are our anchor in the storm. 
Lord, knowing who you are, we lift to you those now who are in storms. And Lord, we pray that you would lift their eyes to the hills where their help comes from. Father, we pray for Harry Gilg, Dick Card, Lorraine Hoffman, Chris Hillis, Jim Saltz, Paula McCulley, Paul Deller, and Sean McCoy. Father, have mercy on them. Lord, have mercy. Lord, we pray for another Valley Church this morning. We pray for Joy Church in Medford. Uh, Lord, we love that church. Lord, bless that congregation. Lord, would many people come to faith in you? Would the saints be strengthened through the preaching of your holy word and through the worship at Joy Church? God, bless that congregation profoundly. And lastly, Lord, we pray for our missionary of the month, Mike Kuhn. Lord, we commend to you his family, his finances, his ministry. God, would you do far more abundantly than he's even asking or thinking right now through the power at work within him. And Lord, we ask that for ourselves and for our church as well. Oh God of Abraham, we love you. Amen.